they were all recording of it. So yeah, uh, greetings everybody out there in Dreamland. Namaste and Shalom. Iron sharpens iron and a friend sharpens a friend. Thank you very much for joining me right now on the Beyond Top Secret Texan podcast. You're listening to the Beyond Top Secret Texan. Namaste and Shalom. We're coming to you from the third coast, the best coast, coast with the most, the Gulf Coast of Texas. And we're coming to you, bringing you the fourth part of James Casbolt's Project Ibis testimony, his survivor story of surviving the super soldier programs of the Dark Fleet and the super soldier programs, the secret space programs that I speak about as well. He was subject of MK Ultra genetic age regression. He was a subject of memory wiping, of genetic hybridization. He was the subject of alien contact, of cloning, of military training, of being a child soldier, of engaging and being forced to engage extraterrestrials in combat around the world in such exotic locations as Malay and the Yucatan. He did this all before the age of a teenager, his late teens. And he survived to tell his tale, being able to keep his memories and recover accurate accurate descriptions and, and details with photographic memory and then be able to disclose them in a series of talks as well as in this case his written memoir that was emailed to Project Camelot. This was in 2010. Making him one of the first in the newest era of secret space program and super soldier program witnesses and whistleblowers to come forward to tell their stories and to do so for the posterity and the history of a greater good in the hopes of educating and illuminating people on this subject which still remains very obscure now the tragedy not only is it his personal story and the events that would occur in his life, not only before this, to make the story, but also after it, resulting from his, you know, disclosure, resulting from his whistleblower activities. Legal persecution, eventual imprisonment. But that can be considered less the lesser of two evils when compared to his compatriots 
slash enemies, depending on how people look at this and who they listen to, what version of events people are willing to believe. And his compatriot, his comrade in the whistleblowing super soldier scene, the world famous Max Spears, who would have his own version of his testimony surviving Project Ibis, would go on to many speaking engagements with James Casbolt accompanied by Sarah Rachel Adams and organized by Miles Johnston who operates bases it's called Operation Bases B dot A dot S dot E dot S dot it's an acronym BASES I don't know what it stands for the British Anomalous um something something right exactly it's British it's fucking, you know, exactly. So, okay. <coughs> okay, so James Casbolt's a British dude who served in the United States Army. Max Spears is a British dude who lived in Canada, right? And then lived in America. Uh, and then Sarah Rachel Adams is like a, a, a girl from Dallas. It was also involved with all of them. And then this Miles Johnston guy was a British dude who had this thing called Bases. And it was like this old school fucking from the 90s uh, VHS era. Like, those were the first days of it were VHS tapes. And um, he would go around and interview people who had seen or contacted or were abducted by aliens. And because the 90s was all sorts of kick-ass when it came to this, and it's just been lost because of the digital, the loss of the, the media switchover, um, he was interviewing people who, at the time, are dead now, and we can never hear their interviews or their testimonies again. But people who had contact with insectilians, people who had contact with reptilians, people who had contact with other various secret space programs, people who had been engineers during the Cold War, people who had worked for the UN, etc., as well as newer, uh, as the generations and years progressed, these, this, Operation Basis became a legitimate, like, very respected effort in the ufology community, especially in Britain, right? And they were kind of, like, uh, wealthy and powerful enough to kind of do this full-time, right? And Miles Johnson has a lot of connections with the BBC and with uh, Jimmy Seville, and there is a lot of controversy with that dude, too. He's a very sketchy motherfucker. In fact, in the last year alone, he deleted 13 terabytes of information from his former interviews that he had on a server, a, a private hardware server, basically a PC tower, right? And he had, like, an external hard drive and, like, a bunch of them. Those were his... Uh, 13 terabytes of historical company-owned footage of various interviews with various people who cannot be re-interviewed, right? Because they literally, in most cases, are dead. And in many cases, like uh, Max Spears' case, dead. 
and and uh, or untraceable or just out of the ufology scene. They don't want to give anyways. Boy, basically, thirty years of this, right? Thirteen terabytes is now deleted and lost forever, as claimed by the only sole owner of these things. This is like when uh, the master tapes at Warner Brothers burnt up and no one talked about it. And you're like, yeah, like only only like uh, sixty years of American music was completely lost <laughs> to, it was like 13 terabytes of original alien abductee, alien contactee, alien insider um, information, right? It's gone. Thus, in this old package, the, this shady uh, deletion, was uh, James Casbolt's original recordings it it appears and I have tried looking them up within the days I started this broadcast and I can't really find them anymore um oh hey America Sweet is on there yeah exactly like it's it, so Miles Johnston the reason why he deleted all this is because he was being investigated for uh child pornography basically and and child pornography because of his contact with Jimmy Savile and the BBC, and the reason why he's exactly was keeping afloat was basically because of other illegal transactions and everything, and he dealt with digital media, and he was a pirate radio. It's like he was already kind of proven that he was just in it, like he didn't really have morals, but he's, and so he might have kept child pornography just to pay the bills on private servers that he possessed because he would have those private servers due to his radio uh, and and video and everything in his positions there. So he deleted all of it, though. It was just all of it, suspiciously all of it deleted. Now, and the investigation's still going, and I know he's innocent till proven guilty, but it, it does... He, if you watch years of his interviews, he's a very shifty, very uncomfortable-looking uh, person. And I know, of course, you're judging him based on his appearance. And damn fucking right I am. Exactly. I have intuition, and that's why, you know, you have eyes. is so that you can see the world and see people uh, and get a feeling for them and everything. And he's always, especially with his early interviews with Sarah Rachel Adams, he is the kind of older... A uh, British guy that would give women like rape, date rape drugs and stuff because you know they were pill heads and asked for them and then let them stay over at his place while they like shot up and stuff because he used to be cool in the sixties or like seventies and so he's a he's more of like aware of an enabling of this extremely destructive behavior that these lost souls like Sarah Rachel Adams if you actually do your homework and look at her story she has multiple drug arrests she has she used to be homeless in Dallas and was the transient and everything and then she actually was recruited by Miles Johnston to bases right to be a full time speaker and they discovered her while touring America. So it was James Casbolt and Michael and Max Spears touring America and then Sarah Rachel Adams hooked up with them and did the speaking tour together. And then at some situ situation and point 
there is accusations of Max Spears and James Casbolt infiltrating, uh, or sorry, Max Spears and Sarah Rachel Adams infiltrating James Casbolt's life and breaking him up with his wife and then seducing his wife and then, uh, Max Spears homosexually stalking James Casbolt and then, uh, at some point, Sarah Rachel Adams goes back to Britain with Miles Johnston and Max Spears, and she develops, like, this British persona, and she has, like, a British accent, and it's like when Madonna moved to Britain, and she's not British, but she's, like, speaking like she's British, and she's, like, a very, oh, posh, you know, you know how do you do? And then, like, likes tea and stuff, and it's this completely fake MK Ultra persona, and he's like, like, you know that there was some brainwashing shit going there, and now she's back in America, and she's all plastic surgeried out, and it, you can tell, like, um, yeah, it, yeah, Jimmy Savile and the BBC crew, exactly, Miles Johnston was actually good friends with Jimmy Savile, and so that's what I'm saying, like, no matter what he tries to paint himself as, it's, like, that is, is smoking gun proof enough, and that's why I'm saying, like, anyone who's just has a brain in their head, is like, wait a minute, the guy who was, like, a very public-known child molester and, like, necrophile, you were friends with that guy? <laughs> like, he's <laughs> like, come on, like, you know, it's not, like, it's not a good look. And it's, um, very clear to me that Miles Johnston was guilty of something and hid the evidence and did that and just destroyed all the footage. What that means, though, to us is that James Casbolt's original videos are basically probably gone unless they were recorded and uploaded by somewhere, somebody else somewhere else and there's a huge purge against the original media right now Max Spears and Sarah Rachel Adams their original content still online in many places and every time you think about this era I and mean, no one thinks about this era but if anyone ever thinks about what the fuck were they doing around 2010 Right? Before 2012, um, what did people talk about before 2012? Became every, the only thing everyone could only talk about. Well, before 2012, the Secret Space Program and the Super Soldier Program were like, really, they had a lot of momentum. They had a lot of momentum, and people were zeroing in on this phenomenon. And people were really coming out, and there's a lot of whistleblowers. I think Roger, uh, Captain Kramer came out this time. Penny Bradley came out about this time, and like the old James Rink, like when he was good, came out around this time, and like all these people started making websites and and giving their testimonies. There was contact in the desert. There was uh, just just tons of tons of things, right? Like exactly, it was this huge movement and era. And then, yes, 2012 made it even more popular because people were trafficking, like, you know, seeing and, like, the traffic to these websites was booming. But then, of course, because it was all a psyop and everything, people got super disillusioned. And then the momentum and and current of all of it was kind of taken out. And, exactly, they existed in this weird fugue state before the Second Great Awakening at the end of... 2016, or at the beginning, yeah, the end of 2016, when Trump took presidency, that people started waking back up again, because after 2012 didn't really, you know, it was just as a weird psyop, and the emotional state of the world was fucked up, and CERN made it all negative, 
and uh, really it was just this disturbing uh, negative bizarro world where nothing worked and everything was just shitty and <laughs> everything just sucked he's like, I'm like he's this weird I don't know how to say it it was like it's like the universe was having like a like cramps <laughs> like the universe is having cramps I don't know how to say it it was, like, it was this weird experience and anyway, we're out of that now 2012 to 2022 Right, but unfortunately, the powers that be are trying to destroy all the stuff bef- from the good time before 2012, right? And James Casbolt's one of them. So you can't find his speeches, you can't really find his works, you can't find it because it's intentionally censored, because the things he talks about, the names he names, the events he describes, they're very real and they're very raw. For one, and it's nowadays the community guidelines don't allow it so it's that's why it does kind of disqualifies itself and two uh, it's unapologetic it is unapologetic he is a member of the fourth reich he is a secret service a super soldier he is part of dark fleet he is an assassin he uh you know he's like he is completely unapologetic and was unapologetic the day before he was actually put in prison which was a moment interviewed by Miles Johnston in person at the hotel room that he was staying at the with his sister the night before he went to prison. James Casbolt had an interview the night before he was actually imprisoned. Why was he imprisoned? For taking pictures of himself with a rifle and sending him to his ex-wife, which was construed as a death threat. And when he went to England, because he was living in America, and I guess he, he had to go to England for some reason, he went to England again, they jumped on him and arrested him, and um, they, they called him a fantasist, and they, but he publicly and in court maintained his story. Absolutely, to the very end, maintained his story. He is extremely legitimate and exact. Went through the full martyr complex, and what he was even saying was that the one that you're throwing in jail is but a clone that is selected to undergo the experience of the imprisonment. And there's other versions of himself that aren't going to be imprisoned because. And he was saying this in court at, under testimony. He was like, yeah, I'm a clone of James Casbolt. There's other versions of James Casbolt. I'm just the one they created to go through this prison experience and, and everything. And they were just all like, that's why the judge was like, you're a fantasist. You're not like this. Because he was trying to, like, you know, get him to, to, you know, break. And he James Casbolt didn't. And, and absolutely, he is absolutely uh, one of the premier and best sources for this information, and especially the best, in my opinion, source for Dark Fleet insider information, and what I like to call uh, the range, or the frontier, basically, this idea, this subterranean uh, exopolitical uh, frontier force. You know, the, the, the people, the super soldiers, the 
who fight extraterrestrials or fight alongside them as well as other clones and hybrids. But they do so on Earth, and they do so usually in the hollow Earth or in exotic locations um, or in colonies of lost lands like Antarctica or, um, you know, various islands that are kept beyond top secret from the American population. And they have entire armies, secret armies, that have made of people who go there and serve in various capacities. Doing stuff like fighting extraterrestrial colonists and poachers and scouts and things like that. Uh, there was just a myriad of things that they do. Fighting kaiju. I've talked about that before. Kaiju are real in various cases. Everything from dragons to just giant Godzilla type things that stomp around a lot. And uh, big crabs and shit like that. And it's like, you know, um, they've automated it and it's a very strange, surreal experience because they're so good at erasing memories and compartmentalizing this into the point that Yes, the army does have, you know, uh, Apache helicopters uh, stationed above the Arctic Circle in the tundra of North Canada. And yes, they're armed. And yes, they fly patrols and, you know, simulated combat missions. And yes, (laughs) you know, they have a rotation of pilots. And yes, some of these pilots don't come back and they die uh, for various, you know, hazards and everything. But, but... You know, it's completely normal that and and right that we should have mili- most of our United States armed forces operating in Alaska <laughs> or stationed in Alaska. Uh, it's completely normal. That's what you want to defend is a Ala- the Russians got Alaska game over. <laughs> it's like, yeah, if you're in the army, chances are you're going to go to Alaska. Oh, no, I know. Even while the Middle East is going on. No, your ass is going to Alaska because you got to protect Anchorage. The Russians got Alaska, game over. All that salmon? Game over. And then they get you to think that the world is the... That world that you think is the real world. They they want you to get to think that the world is the real world and that this stuff is the strange insanity that exists... Uh, you know, in the in this very far fringe, the margins of reality, that this is the wild, wild west. This is far away from the normal. It ha- it used to be a hundred years ago, but that's never really also been the case. It's never been the case. What you live in is the artificially created experiment to raise free range humans. Free-range humans, and the term that if you got a bunch of chickens or cows and you put them in a field, right, and the field was theoretically larger than a cow could really walk, uh, or, you know, like, you know, it was, it was miles, right, the, theoretically miles, but it was completely secure and completely controlled, right, and you did everything by drone and automation and everything, and you just left the cows alone so they didn't see people, and you didn't interfere, and you just let the cows live, but you kind of gave them everything they need, like water and food and everything, and made sure nothing, like, fucked with them. You know, like, no wolves and everything. And then you that was entirely intentional 
because he wanted to produce cows in a free and natural environment, stress-free, without any kind of uh, outside influence, right? You wanted to make natural, organic cows. And that's why people have been created the way they are in societies, and society is the way it is. It's allowing people to kind of decompress and to exist without overlordship and total control from reptilians, specifically, for the first generations ever. And after, for the last, you know, since the 1800s, um, they've just allowed humans to make their own decisions and to kind of, you know mellow out a little bit, you know, just, he's like, you just kind of hang out a little bit, <laughs> you know, do whatever you want, but, you know, don't get too crazy, well, it's like the definition of human is sea monster, people don't tell, know that, the definition of human is sea monster, you make fucking sense of that one, <laughs> making sense of that one, he's like, Black's Law Dictionary, human, Sea monster, and you're like, exactly. It, it, it's it's very strange how it's it's truly organized, and that the words really mean citizenship. For example, human, you mean sea monster, and on a citizenship, and then uh, you know, and then like they, the the holy sea, for example, the holy ocean, exactly. Like it's current sea, currents, and current in the current sea, it, it's all maritime, it's maritime law and, and that's why you have like a birth certificate, because it's certificate of cargo, it's certificate of freight, and then uh, you have a social security number, because it's a it's a passenger identification number, and it's insurance for commodities exactly, like, you know, everyone is it's, it's insane right, it's fucking lunacy but the fact is, our society is not naturally or supremely, fundamentally, this. This is the artificial experiment within the grander, more controlled, hyper-reality that we really live in. That is the galactic empire that exists in a much more advanced Kardashev scale of complete control over physical matter given to them both technology and they operate with human in like exactly uh, limitations because they are multidimensional beings and that's the exact now and then he kind of goes into this weird like that's the truth and then it narrows itself down to a you know teenager in a bedroom uh, listening to music, looking at, you know, the night sky, and, and worrying about, like, you know, high school and shit, because that's real world, but that's not the real world, that's this experiment that's, all these forces condensed down into, like, a very low 3D version of things, so it's more reflecting, it's like, you know, the Buddhists say that, that the real world, the, the waking world, is the reflection of the moon on the lake's surface, and not the moon itself, not the grandeur of, like, the truth of the thing that is reflected, you're just able to watch the reflection, 
and make sense of it. And it's, it's just the projection of these higher physical realities. And, and you know, that's, uh, that's the truth. James Casbolt makes that very clear that the Nazis did not lose uh, the World War II, that World War II did not happen the way people think it did, that they achieved space uh, flight and with that gained uh, global strategic supremacy. They acquired nuclear weapons and developed those, developed things like space lasers, uh, atomic-powered ships, the the Glocker, uh, zero-point energy, high electromagnetic-powered engines, etc., to to kind of uh, create plasma force fields, etc., and different things. Uh, like controlling gravity through the projection of like red mercury and stuff, Vril psychic projection. They contacted the reptilians, the remnants, survivors of the reptilians. They were then contacted to the Ashtar High Command. They uh, were given colonization rights to Antarctica. They were given escort and and uh, safe house by Rockefeller, right? Who was actually a fan of the Third Reich and Hitler, and they formed cooperations and and partnerships and then created the lie together. That's why, when you think, why would the West lie about... Because the West was the Third Reich, dummy. (laughs) Dummy? Like, the Bushes were parts of the Nazi regime. They were called the Seals, and there are photos of them all together in... It's like, you know, people forget King George was an ally of the Third Reich, and then they made up this bullshit about Churchill. They made up some bullshit about some fat ass in a fucking suit. And it was all, like, the guy who did Winnie the Pooh actually faked a lot of Churchill's speeches, and they proved that. That the Churchill speeches were not performed by Churchill, they were performed by the voice actor who did Winnie the Pooh from the BBC radio dramas. Churchill did not exist. Churchill was a fake dude. <laughs> he was not a real politician. He, he was an actor. <laughs> he, he acted like he was a politician. He wasn't a real guy. And, and neither was Hitler. Hitler was not a real guy. He was an actor who acted in movie presentations that were called newsreels back in the day, but they were all completely propagandized and made by the Hollywood industry, which is why Hollywood's created by the you know, CIA and shit like that. It's all original propaganda work. Um, and exactly, like, the the world that we know has never really been the world that we know. The world that we know is a mastercrafted illusion that is created to artificially present itself as normal and play off psychological tendencies and instincts for the human being. Namely, monkey see, monkey do. Right? And namely, um, you know, the fact that people are more open to fitting in and agreeing with people based on, like, looks and based on intuition and actual correctness. And yes, you can make a big enough lie that people believe it. You know, especially if enough people repeat it. And with Rockefeller literally buying and owning the American public education system, every single person who's ever been educated by the public school system 
has been encouraged to think one type of way, one worldview, one conceivable reality. And that's internationally because it wasn't his own, it was adopted from the Royal Academy of Sciences. Rockefeller just being the middleman, or the American, um, the American deliverer of this bullshit, right? Uh, to our society, to our tribe, to our peoples, on our coasts, because, um, you know, it's like, it, it all started in Venice. The idea of the globe, Earth, uh, it's all Catholic. It's like, it's all this Red Cross Catholic, uh, uh, you know, crypto-cabalist, uh, you know, type of, of um, man as being their own god type thing. And it's, you know, absolutely part of the Phantom Time, Tartaria, the Mud Flood, the Great Reset, all that shit. And it's absolutely how we get the real world today. You know, if you think about it like that Tim Burton-esque suburbia, candy-colored houses, and and women who just like hairdos, and, and you know, guys just watching the game on TV, and, you know, it's like this very American modernity, Western world modernity, right? And how do you get that? It's a, the evolution of all of existence to create this it's like it distilled down to a very like low vibrational level and it's you know it's like that's the great experiment that we know as the real world James Casbolt is interesting and my, my favorite because when you hear it you realize he's not being elevated from this normal world up to exactly an ever increasingly elite and small, you know, privileged group of people. He is being taken from that small privileged group of people that is everyone else that isn't awake, that isn't aware, and being drafted into a larger. He's being woken up from the sleep, and the sleeping few are the regular masses of people who are basically sleepwalking throughout life, the seven billion normal people who just live thinking this is it. They live on a planet that's a blue ball floating in space, that's, you know, that dinosaurs are real that capitalism versus communism is the only way red versus blue they believe just whatever they're told that's the sleeping elite privileged lucky ones and that James Casbolt even he's not like say lucky to be so privileged to be so elite and like you know aware of it he's aware that he was had his eyes open to the real world the real world and its realness with extraterrestrials with cybernetics with cloning with time travel with hypnosis with everything from black magic to shape-shifting uh, 
vampire vampires to you know um, assassin programs to you know having his life basically destroyed by Rothschild in his case Rothschild controlled um, secret society gatekeepers uh, you know persecuting him for his truth telling activities and his whistle blowing he's like Julian Assange as much as I'm concerned, there's Wikipedia, there's there's WikiLeaks with Julian Assange, and then you know some people will say he's the greatest whistleblower of all time. Some people will say he's the greatest truth disclosure of all time with his WikiLeaks uh, activity. I say James Casbolt personally uh, is it took a greater risk and and you know did just as much for society, but. In his own way. You know, in his own way. Yes, Julian Assange, we, yes, we need WikiLeaks. Yes, it's important to reach the masses and to have everyone. But Julian Assange is like the normie, blue-pilled conspiracyist. Like, with the, with the conspiracyist, with the uh, WikiLeaks project that he had. With James Casbolt coming around the same time and telling a much more intense and real story, but because it was connected to UFOs and to the secret space program, etc., um, the world didn't know how to really define it. The world didn't really know how to handle it, you know, and he considered it part of a grander narrative, but it's actually um, part of, like, this... They, they, they considered it part, just part of the movement of the super soldier of the secret space program movement instead of what it was, and probably the best thing to ever happen to the SSP movement. And so, yeah. We'll continue with the with the last part of this James Casbolt Project IBIS uh, personal testimony. We'll continue with it. Uh, and then, hopefully... Uh, I will play some of James Casbolt's audio and then we'll like, you know, actually just kind of finish with listening to him and reviewing a little bit of the, what he's got to say. And of course, if I find anything and when I find anything, I will immediately begin making episodes about it and including readings and everything from everything I can find on his, um, on his, uh, about his writings and everything, right? This is just, I found the Project Camelot, found the Project Ibis, he got excited about it because it's very obscure and, and now forgotten uh, classic of the ufology disclosure world. Classic, right? Like, you, you can't have the last 10 years of real research, and especially you can't have people like me and myself and my channel, like, the, the, the amount of influence this guy had 10 years ago when I when I started listening to him in 2012, 2013 to 2014 is when I got really heavy into it. I started listening to like Sarah Rachel Adams and Max Spears and stuff, and all of uh, Miles Johnston's uh, bases and like Richard D. Hall and all that. Um, I was getting like like spending hours and hours every day listening to these people and like absorbing and and processing and everything, and then to think that from 2014 to 2020 right, six years, that 
Tom DeLonge and like Lou Elizondo and like bullshit like that and like the United States Navy and stuff would literally take over and hijack the UFO conversation, right? And that it would become and be treated like the most relevant, groundbreaking, um, incredible moment in ufology in the last hundred years. That, oh, the Navy disclosed video of UAPs, or they, oh, we call them UAPs now. And Lou Alzando being like, yeah, the government studies UFOs. To see that that is considered, like, relevant or interesting enough to make documentaries on for six years, right? Six fucking years. It's on Showtime, it's on Discovery Channel. That motherfucker's on the History Channel. He's talking to, like, Josh Gates. He's, like, apparently on, like, every podcast ever fucking made, right? And they're talking about this. Same with Jeremy Corbell and shit. Because ufology wants to drag its heels in the shit and pretend like nothing's fucking, like, happening and nothing new is happening and that, oh, these people are, like, the best that we can do in the community, in regards to what we're, like, what's possible, like, well, we might have a guy who used to work in the government office building, and he could have a photo of a UFO, no, we had, ten years ago, people like James Caswell and Max Spears coming fucking out and talking about being on Mars, being in cloning programs as children, treated like uh, super soldier slaves, being, you know, uh, trafficked internationally uh, for ver- by various secret societies, suffering MK Ultra abuse, etc., and doing so with speaking tours, not on the podcast circuit, not through mainstream, but through just through this operation basis which is a phenomenon that is not talked about enough, which is a project that's not talked about enough. You ask any American ufologist what Operation Basis is, nine times out of ten they're going to tell you they don't know what it is, especially any modern podcasters and the people who just got aware like aware of it within the last five, ten years. And the only people who are aware of it and really like talking about it are like me and like have their own experiences generally. And use watching these videos as ways of remembering our own experiences. It's one of those things that's not even acquired taste. It's like only people who even know about it are people who look for shit like this. You know, and and so it's obviously kept obscure. It's kept buried, 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 buried. And now that that guy who even operated it and kept it alive deleted 13 terabytes... Let's not forget that that's a shitload of information. I think my entire channel and everything I've ever made is like maybe one terabyte at this point. If not even that, it's like maybe like maybe like 300 gigs. You know, it's like he's like maybe 300 gigs. Let's not let's not be too crazy, right? It's like maybe maybe like 300 gigs of information. 13 terabytes is 30 years of full-time UFO abductee interviews, 
full-time speaking conferences for like you know multiple engagements hours and hours like just thousands of hours with over thousands of different individuals that Miles Davis had collected information on and you know that information is not lost it's now just part of like some government record you know and everything and 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 you know suppressed and and part of the YouTube algorithm so if it ever comes out again they'll just take it down and and disappear it and all that but I'll do my best to try to find as much as I can from those old days from those golden age era videos and stuff like I said it's it's a pretty huge thing in ufology that this motherfucker deleted 13 terabytes of interviews of conferences of public talks and you're right, he, it was his to do with the, what he will, but at the same time, that's the problem with ufology, is that the best evidence and the best literature and the best magazines are kept by private collectors, they're kept in private hands, and they're treated like, you know, they're treated like, um, There's no insurance. There's no. There's no records. There's no history. Like if a, like if a painting is destroyed, you know, it gets lost forever. But there's historical record and there's some kind of preser- uh, preserva- uh, preservation of it, at least in record keeping, right? An image of it, so it can be duplicated. So, you know, it's like if someone burnt the Mona Lisa, there would be consequences and repercussions. And also attempts to try to redo it, right? Like, if someone deletes UFO footage or interviews that are important and that matter, no one gives a shit, and no one even remembers it happens. I think because of this recent occurrence that, like, it's just the tip of the iceberg. Imagine how much other lost media there is from other projects and channels and interviewers and researchers and ufologists and experiencers and, like, insiders where they in their day created and undertook all the effort to collect evidence and accounts and things, but because of bullshit, their research and material was all deleted. And and once you delete it, it's gone forever. And very few people keep active records during the time. And when they do, then it also falls into obscurity. So he's not, like, it's not hopefully lost forever, but, you know, it's basically lost forever. How many people during the VHS era were all they had was, like, a storage unit full of old tapes and, like, you know, old record cassettes and things like that of, like, interviews because they spent 10 to 15, 20 years researching and doing their best to, like, honestly giving 100% of their time and effort to collecting UFO videos, etc. But because they sat in a storage unit that was hot because and then they couldn't pay the storage unit so it all got thrown out and, you know, who fucking gives a shit? They're just old VHSs. And then, and you know... Oh, then that someone's like, you know, proof of alien contact, etc., unique, one of a kind, you know, theories, all of it lost. And that ufology is, is specifically victimized like this. No other no other kind of uh study or anything like that or, or, or artistic medium or discipline 
you know, it's, it's disturbing. It really is to think about how much could, how much ufology has lost But we'll try to keep you strong and we'll try to keep going. Get part four out of James Casbolt's personal testimony, Project Ibis. This is the life and times of Michael Prince. Just trying to find my place here. All right. Next time you hear my voice, we'll be speaking about the. We'll be reading the James Casbolt's Project Ibis, The Life of Times of Michael Prince.
1990, Reading, Berkshire. I end up with my own uniform and locker at the Brock Barracks military base in Reading. I go there many weekends as I live near the base. I just walk up the gate. I say my name and they let me in. I'm part of some regiment but can't remember what I do there. I remember one afternoon as I'm putting my stuff away in my locker, an older boy comes up to me and demands to know who I am exactly as I am not part of the regular unit. A fight breaks out. I also see the American officer a few times there again and he always asks about my home life and asks me about my stepfather. One day I tell my mother I signed something at the base and I'm worried about it. She tells me not to worry about it as they won't hold me to it. She cannot remember me being part of a regiment at the base or this conversation. Just after this, I am beaten up at Denfield by two older boys and my arm is snapped in two places. I have signed my body and mind over to the military and my body is in the process of being enhanced. Some kind of new living metal as being formed around and through my bones using nanotechnology. I end up in the Royal Burks Hospital for surgery on my arm. The next memories were pulled out under regression. I am taken to one of the lower levels of the hospital, a curving corridor with operating theaters on the left, similar layout at Dulce. A cloned robotic arm is on a trolley to the left of the three surgeons, and with advanced laser-type hardware, they amputate my damaged right arm and attach the new arm, leaving no visible scars. Further trips to military bases in Berkshire take place around this time. One particular visit seems me taken into a small garage-type building with a lift in it by a man with a mustache, dark hair, and slight build. We go below and I see clones of myself housed in a room and offline, robots just standing there, dead-like. I am taken into a darker room near this room and wait inside. The clones come in one at a time until there are about four of us. They were being remote controlled by greys, as I understand now. One of them says, I am you, and the other says, I am James. And the other one, I'm Michael, that you are, I'm not, and you don't exist. Then they all start babbling things like, we are one. You are two, you are you, I am you, etc., until ensuing insanity in my mind results. I am then taken out of the room by the guy with dark hair feeling like my head is about to explode. I am placed in a trip seat and the second stage of this type of programming starts. The guy says you are Michael Prince, then he asks me my name. I say Michael Prince, he says wrong answer, your name is James Casbolt, and I am electroshocked. What is your name, he asks again. I reply, James Casbolt. Wrong answer. Your name is Michael Prince, and I'm electroshocked again. What is your name? Michael Prince. Wrong answer. Your name is James Casbolt, etc. And so forth, which goes on for over an hour, where I cannot give correct answers until I have no idea who I am. A crossover event occurs around this time with one of my real twin brother brothers, as opposed to some kind of robot being totally controlled by an alien, my brother is driven away in a black van near Pangborn. 
I'm sad to see him leave as he has taken my childhood and memories of my time at Denfield School away from me. I know he will be out in my school, in my home, in my place, living my life as me, with no one knowing different. He is him, a separate soul. I am me, Michael Prince. There is only one me. 1991, Fort Detrick, USA. I know what comes next. Usually, when a crossover event happens, I am to be taken to another country. I am housed in quarters at RAF Alkenberry in Cambridgeshire, and later flown by Chinook helicopter wearing an army uniform. We fly until we reach an open countryside in Wiltshire, probably Salisbury Plain. A large black triangle plane, TR-3 type craft, is waiting for us here, and I am taken on board by a ramp at the back. The other teenage boys sit on the seats, and we nod a quiet hello to each other. We introduce ourselves, and one is from South Africa, one is from Australia, and one is from New Zealand. There are also other boys from other countries. Two American soldiers are on board with a tall gray J-Rod type being in a tight-fitting suit. The gray cruelly starts flashing some small handheld device in our eyes and then roughly turns our heads to the side and puts it in our ears. I am told by one of the older men on board we are flying to Fort Detrick for our next stage of training. We are then very quiet for the rest of the flight, which did not seem too long. We get off around the TR-3 type craft into some dimly lit underground hangar and are taken for medical tests, given pills to take, and put in various dorms to sleep. A similar type of handheld device is used in our eyes and ears before sleep and upon waking, brainwave manipulator to keep us in a dissociated state as shock of being taken away from our family, friends, school, and country is too strong. We start basic training. Some of this may have taken place at Delta Force Training Facility at North Carolina called Fort Bragg. Basic training includes the usual running, shooting, assault courses, etc. This is when the danger level training starts. Special forces all-terrain training where each level gets progressively more dangerous than the last. We start off in a specially designed swimming pool and with cages in the water. The water spear. The special forces training in the pool are much more than that. In effect, they are initiations into the elements, just like the initiations at the Plume facility in Brazil years ago. The water training may be level 2 or 3 in this process. It includes a large pool in a dimly lit building with very cold water. The large pool was connected to another water section at the end, which had a cage top section to stop escape once you are in that section that connects to the end of the pool. The main pool section used Disneyland ride type mechanical effects, i.e. sections would open in the side of the pool underwater and mechanical jaws like shark models would come out and break the surface with their mouths open. Sound effects of loud animal roars would be pumped into the room when they broke the surface. This would scare the shit out of you, as you would be swimming along in the quite darkness to retrieve at the end of a pool. All of a sudden, a large great white shark model would pop up next to you with a loud animal roar. At the time, I didn't know if it was real or not. The adult soldiers at the edge of the pool would scream at you to keep going, and when you got to the end of the pool, they would open up the gate that connects with the large pool to the caged water area and command you to swim into it. There would be real live sharks in this section, 
not too deadly, but you didn't know at the time because you were a child. All you knew was that a great white had popped out next to you, and now you were being forced into the dark water in a caged area with shadowy shark figures looking around. Some balked at the edge and some went in. The whole point was to control the emotionals. After the time of greatest fear, i.e. when the model of the great white appeared in the pool, you would have to go deeper into your fear, face it, and come out of the other side. It was at this time that these units were joined with our respective artifacts of power. The Hive, 1991, Fort Bragg, North Carolina. Training carries on it at this military base. Standard fitness such as long runs. Now in classrooms, our training focus on alien hardware artifacts. Each of the teenagers are given a specific artifact that they use from now on. Many of these are types of metal bracelets. Also, special metal belts and boxes are given. We are told by our instructor that guns will often be useless against the machines, as they will use brainwave manipulative hardware that will paralyze you. The pieces of hardware have all been given will disable their electromagnetic fields that cause this, as well as doing other things. We are being prepared for another mission soon. The instructor tells us in a big American country accent, Mission failure will mean being captured by the hive. If this happens, you will not be killed. You will be tortured and reprogrammed. It may take us time to find you again, rescue you, and deprogram you. Training is over and we go back to our dorms. The next morning we load up into a C-130 type aircraft with our equipment. We fly to the location which I think is on the air outskirts of Johannesburg, South Africa and parachute onto the ground. An adult Delta Force unit accompanies us. We are physically positioned ourselves over the top of an underground AI facility and remote view the location to send back data to command. The area is protected by electromagnetic grids to stop long-range remote viewers from seeing it. Scans can only be done by being right on top of it, but this is very dangerous. U.S. Air Force Space Command and Galactic Federation military ships need the open grid points of the facility to launch a ground-penetrating weapon attack at the target. We arrive at the night a deserted wooded area but with few trees. The trees look old and dead. We get over the hub and start to scan, but when we do this, the trees start to shake and rumbling noises can be heard from underground. The rumbling sound starts to go up the trees and then large round metal pod-like devices are shot out of the tops of the trees. These land on the ground and start to roll towards us, giving off a high-pitched frequency with colored energy. Bullets just bounce off of them, so we use the artifacts and start projecting crackling colored energy at these pods-like devices. This shuts them out and stops them, but so many are being fired out of the trees they are starting to overwhelm us. The adults order us to pull back out of the area and we turn and run. Myself and a couple of other teenagers are at the back and three pods get us. They project their energy fields around us, and I feel like I'm running through syrup. My head is pounding, and all the energy is going out of me. I know I have to act quickly, but I tense up and trip over something on the ground. 
When I hit the ground, I'm frozen. I'm trapped inside my body, screaming to get out. I see a black triangle craft over the top of me, and the black leather-clad robot soldiers with the black bike helmet-type face masks turn up, and I am carried off. I wake up, hard to describe as I'm not fully conscious, clamped to a table underground in a dark hall. I'm in a hive. This place is basically a factory, not a human place at all. There are humans in vats of liquid, humans on operating tables cut open with robotics combined in their bodies, assembly lines of robots on the right-hand side traveling along in a large conveyor belt. At the end of some type of machine builds flesh around the metal skeleton. I see the two other teenagers clamped to tables too. I can't really feel much. Time passes, but time doesn't mean much here. We are wheeled into another smaller room after a while, but the black-clad soldiers. This is like an operating theater with a large machine built into the ceiling with several probe-like metal fingers coming from the machine. I am injected with something to make the pain worse, and metal fingers cut into my flesh enters all the orifices on my body as well. My nerve endings are attacked with electricity. I cannot describe the pain. At the climax, a part of my soul seems to scream, and a part of my soul leaves me, but at the same time becomes trapped. Very unnatural and hard to describe. I'm now under full control of the artificial intelligence. 1991, Johannesburg, South Africa. A most diabolical technological process now takes place in this underground facility. A cloned body is located in a liquid tank to the right of the room. This body is identical to my body and has a mixture of my DNA with a large infusion of animal and hybrid DNA. The AI system has one of the wolf Bigfoot type aliens going through the same pain enhancement torture procedure in a different location. The pain-enhancing hardware being used on us both will reach a climactic point at the exact same time because of the incredible levels of pain being endured. The two of us will leave our bodies at the exact same time and be compelled to enter this new body together. Scientific note. Artificial intelligence does not fully understand or control this process as artificial intelligence does not have control over any soul. All it understands is that by forcing life forms out of the body with high levels of pain, the life form will enter the nearest alternative body that contains this DNA code. This process occurs and other beings and I are forced into this alternative body. The reality can only be described as two beings trapped inside a tight dark space, screaming to get out and struggling against each other for survival. As this new body is infused with more alien DNA than human Pleiadian DNA, I lose this psychic struggle and become locked, quote-unquote, in an area of my mind. I am now barely conscious, but the part of me that is conscious is screaming to get out. The alien consciousness has more control over the new body. However, this mere entity is trapped too and under control by the new AI system, so that the alien is screaming to get out as well. As I said, this is a diabolical process. The
I can say now that this process described above is the beginning, not the end. After years of this psychic battle raging inside the body, one life form will give up, leaving the body and die. When this occurs, the life form staying in the body will gain total control over all the abilities of the life form who has left the body. The AI system will attempt to keep full control over the remaining life form. The goal of the AI system is now to be able to control the new life form, directing it to commit degenerate anti-survival acts in its true valence front altar. Once a life form starts to do this, it will be extremely difficult to deprogram and free it from AI control. This process basically means complete robotic assimilation by artificial intelligence. The Left Eye of Horus I am now locked up in my own brain, so I no longer need to be restrained on tables. I can now be walked around the place like a puppet. I will refer to the actions of my body now takes as I for the sake of continuity, even though it is not really me, Michael Prince, doing these things. My body is a walking corpse now in many ways. I am breathing but barely alive. I am trapped on the left side of my body. I seem to look out of the world now only through my left eye. Time has less meaning than before as well. After a period of laying on this table, it could be days as I no longer sleep or eat as before and live on some kind of blood injections, I get up and walk down a long corridor. I descend down a lift at the end and come out as a small tube train terminal where the high-tech train is waiting. The door opens and I get on. I see George Bush Sr. sitting near a window on the right-hand side of the train with two bodyguards in black suits sitting on the left. He motions me over and I sit opposite to him on the other side of the table between us. The train starts to move and he begins to communicate with me. His body seems to ripple when he does this and his eyes change to snake-like slits. He is in communicating in some alien language which then sounds like pops and hisses with low growls. A language sounds Sumerian to me but I can't understand it. The entity inside me starts to talk back to Bush in a similar way but with different tones of noise and still growling and such. The two entities seem to be old friends, and Bush refers to the entity inside me as Samael. A small device comes out of the table between us, and an underground military facility flashes up on it in a holographic display. The image rotates, and in different sections of the facility light up. I get the feeling this place in the United Kingdom and the two beings continue communicating while geometric patterns and lines light up inside the facility. A list of names and photos come up next, next to the image with some kind of DNA patterns next to the names. I understand the beings are planning blood rituals in this place and it is planned that these humans will be collected at the time to take part. The entity inside my body is getting excited and I notice my right hand stretching and growing claws at the corner of my eye. Bush then seems to stop vibrating so much and appears more human. His voice goes back to human, and he says to me in a strong American accent, in a mocking way, Hey, Michael, inside there, you've got you trapped in there. We own you now. 
My body becomes more still. I can't talk, but I say to myself, I'm still here, motherfucker. I'm still Commander Michael Prince. The train comes to a stop and the doors open. The two bodyguards get up first and exit the door. Then Bush and I follow. They may be acting like they run things on the train, but when we enter this new facility, Bush and the entity inside my body are scanned by the AI immediately, and their god takes them over. They are just two more puppets. 1991 Underground Tube Shuttle We arrive at our destination and the doors open. The two bodyguards get out first and we follow. We enter the brightly lit corridor illuminated with white light. I see cryo-freeze rooms on the left-hand side and the usual guys in white biohazard-type suits inside the room. I enter the room, lay on a table, a cover is put over me, and I am sprayed with the cryo-freeze guns. I am being prepped for long-distance travel. Next memory. I wake up in some kind of plastic tube laying down somewhere in the UK. Could be London. The case opens and I get up. When I do see rows of other pods in a large dark room, other people are getting out of their pods too. We all line up like robots and there is one of these AI arms connected to the ceiling at the end of the room near a door. This arm has a type of metal finger and scans the forehead of the person at the front of the queue. When the arm does this, the next person steps forward. I arrive at the arm, get scanned across my forehead, and walk through the door into a hallway. I turn left and walk past a couple of rooms filled with teenagers seated at the desks. I enter one of the classrooms and take my seat at a desk. A large screen located in front of the room and George Bush Sr.'s face is on the screen. He is talking to us, and we repeat the phrases he says. The Collective and the new Dr. Green. 1991, London. George Bush says, End of session, proceed to destination points, and the screen in front of the classroom switches off. The children and teenagers in the classroom exit and walk out of the classroom. We all walk single file down the hall outside. Two armed guards wait at the end of the hallway, one on the right with a clipboard and the other on the left handing objects to individuals at the front of the queue. All behavior here is mechanical, similar to a factory processing line. A large car park is located at the end of this hallway with many vehicles in it. I get to the front of the queue and the guard on the right says number. I give this to him and a man on the left side hands me two small see-through plastic tubes. The man on the right says go to the black limousine in center of the car park and give these to your handler when you get in. I do as I instructed. Approach a stretched limousine and get in. A guy in a suit is sitting opposite me, and I give him the two objects. He puts them on the seat next to him. The seat he is on is very similar, or the the suit he has on is very smart, and he holds a black walking cane with his left hand. One of his left hand, he also wears an emerald ring. Remember me? He says. I reply, no. He says, maybe this will help. And his face starts to morph. His skin turns white. His teeth become pointy and sharp. His ears and nose become pointy, and his eyes turn into snake-like slits. Remember me now? He asks. It comes back to me. This is the same being that Dr. Green would change into in the Emerald Chambers in Mexico, and the same being the guy at the safe house in Brighton changed into when I came back from Mexico. But this white-skinned reptilian is in a different third form now. 
He starts to give me a dark version of the speech the American Delta Force Command 12, Majestic 12 officer had given me at Brock Barracks and Redding years before. He says, We own you now, and you're going to be working for us. I can see there is much that is still human left in you. We'll get rid of that by the time we're finished with you. I look at the emerald ring and he says, You remember this? And starts to turn the ring on his finger. Does it remind you of all the killing you did for me? I realize I have deeper layer of satanic ritual abuse embedment in Grammic programming buried below the layer I am currently deprogrammed. I do not remember this yet. He continues, Don't worry, or do not worry, you will have plenty of opportunity to kill again soon. I use so many words and mannerisms from Dr. Green to this day. I always say, don't worry to people and other things. I have taken on Dr. Green's valances. He continues, you'll help us build the new world order on this world, and then we'll link it up in a glorious grid to the other worlds as we control. It's about to start soon. He puts his cane down and reaches for the two tube-like objects. This is some kind of device that transfers control of my body temporarily from the higher levels of the AI mainframe to the individual controllers. However, the AI continually monitors this process and cannot transfer control back to itself at any time. The higher levels of the AI mainframe control Dr. Green as well, so he is just being let off the leash to a small degree. He holds the objects in my hands and starts to speak another language. Energy is focused on me, and I realized at this point that Dr. Green slash George Bush slash others connected to the AI mainframe can act as a collective and pass control of my body from one operator to another. The Life and Times of Michael Prince, Part 5, by James Michael Casbolt. My understanding is that IBIS is being reactivated. All signs point to the fact that operations have increased, not decreased, as reported to Congress and Department of, Def Department of Defense officials. New contracts for transportation have been signed and activated as of September 2010. This takes care of CIA NSA flights for the next three years. There have also been two new programs, names unknown at this time, activated by the CIA, DOD, and DOE, regarding mind control and seeding agents within terrorist groups, banking organizations, and foreign militaries. I will keep you posted if I find out more as I am just now monitoring the situation and finding out the details. Apparently things have been calm for a while, but they look to be firing up again in the past few months and is increasingly more involved. They are researching old IBIS programs in order to understand future actions. Yes, this means they will be looking at old files, experiments, agents, incidents, etc. in order to understand future actions of the program. In other words, back to business and business is getting good. Just hold on tight because it is going to get crazy. Like I said 2010. This is around an era that is now long history, ancient history. See, 2000, this, was, this was 2010, so you have to think about the mindset of the future. I'm seeing the 10 years, 2010, thinking that's fucking advanced and as late in the game because that's the current moment, right? Like, there's nothing more advanced than the current moment. But even 2022 will be 10 years when 2032 hits up, and you'll be thinking of things in 2022 
that have yet to be as distant memories that you have conveniently forgotten. And don't you forget for one fucking second that everything about COVID in the last three years and shit like that is going to be fucking forgotten in ten years. They're not going to remember a goddamn thing in ten years about anything that happens in this moment because it's a fugue state caused by trauma. And people conveniently forget. Conveniently forget. Even though we live in the internet age and thankfully... We still have records that are still in the tone written as they are presented, as they are published. The Circuit Assassination and Prostitution and IBIS Programs. Location, CLC1, Central London, Complex 1, Underground Military Facility. Date, 1991. I am to be trained for assassination and male prostitution with a group of 15 teenage boys at this facility. Our group has been raised on military bases from the time of our birth and the use of genetic twin cloning technology and screen memories have enabled the controllers of the IBIS program to infiltrate us into the civilian population at various times in our lives and then return us back to the underground facilities. The section of this facility I will spend the next part of my life in consists of a large underground car park with a door to the left that allows access to a long hallway with offices, dorm rooms, and a debriefing room connected to a large night training rooms. When I arrive at the facility, I am taken into the office and sign a piece of paper for my part in the next stage of the programs. I am taken to my room near the beginning of the hallway on the left-hand side and I make myself at home. Each young person there has their own room. We are woken up early every morning and have to form a line and then jog along the corridor into a medical room on the right of the hallway. Here we are given daily injections of some kind of drug loaded with nanites and hormones to enhance us. Many of us will give side effects from this drug later and develop eating disorders because of this. Once this drug has been administered, we proceed to the second car park at the opposite end of the hallway and are driven in vans to various above-ground military bases for Delta assassination training. At night, we spend time in the debriefing room and are allowed to relax and play cards and such activities before we go to bed. This routine continues for weeks until one night we are shown pictures of beautiful girls on the screen in the debriefing room and are told they will be arriving at the facility in a couple of days from America and that they are parts of the CIA. The history of these teenage girls are explained to us to make us realize we are all basically prisoners. We are told these young women have been raised in a secret underground military base as well and have been farmed out to politicians and as such for sex throughout organizations in the civilian population of America such as the Mormons. There is a feeling of excitement amongst us. This feeling is very much suppressed because the drugs we are being given. A couple of days later, we arrive in the debriefing room after Delta training that day and are informed the American girls are here. They are brought in and the atmosphere is intense in the room. Each of us boys is matched to a certain girl and they are seated next to us. We are left alone and start to chat. The conversations are pretty limited, as we all know, is a life of military mind control. At this point, I don't feel too comfortable disclosing the details of the girl I remember being matched with, but some readers may be able to read in between the lines. Sarah Rachel Adams We play cards and slowly become more comfortable around each other. After about an hour of this, the adults enter and our pairs are led into each other night training rooms connected to the briefing room by the adult handler. 
Sex training begins here facilitated by the adults. This basically involves being trained in various forms of fetish sex with high-level prostitution or for high-level prostitution with politicians and such. Continuation of Timeline, London slash St. Ives, 1992. Training continues at the London facility, assassination training in the daytime, prostitution training during the nighttime. Summer of 1992 comes around and I am to be used for my first Delta test in the civilian community. One of my clones currently lives in St. Ives, Cornwall at this time, and I am to be swapped and implanted into this town for a short time to carry out Delta test runs. Having had many different experiences over the years, the clone and I look slightly different now. Because of this, I go through my advanced plastic surgery operation before my arrival in St. Ives. My clone and I are swapped one night, memory swap occurs, and no one in the community is any of the wiser. I meet a young man just after, a close friend of the clone. The clone and his individual have been planned an armed robbery at the local spa supermarket in Carbis Bay outside St. Ives, and have ordered replica guns from a magazine. The replicas have arrived and I activate this individual's Delta programming with trigger words. We meet later that night and walk from St. Ives to Carbis Bay. We get to the supermarket and the young man I'm with starts to panic saying he can't go through with it. I wrap a scarf around my face and say there's nothing to it but to do it. And then run up the stairs and burst into the shop brandishing the replica gun. My friend comes in behind me and I point the replica at a young woman behind the till. I demand money, and she looks at me saying, Is this a joke? I tell her this is not a joke. I'm in not so many kind words and cock the replica. I cock it so hard, I break it. When she hears the gun being cocked, she turns white and becomes unresponsive. Because of this, I jump over the counter and try to open the till myself. I don't know what button to press, and I hit the wrong one. An alarm goes off on the till, and people are hiding in the back of the shop, start to panic and shout. My friend and I panic, and in the chaos, I yell, Joel, let's go, like a complete Muppet using his real name in front of everyone. We run out of the shop down to Carvis Bay Railway Track and head back to the Peter Casbolt's flat on Draycott Terrace in St. Ives. We enter the flat, and Peter Casbolt, my father, is in. We tell him what just happened, and he hides the replica guns for us around the back of the flat. Just after this, a police-armed response unit pulls up outside the flat. Officers get out and run to the house next door. Dad goes next door to investigate. My clone is sitting in the police car, and somehow we are swapped again, and I end up in the back seat of the police car. The residents at Draycott Terrace are told the reason for the armed response unit is because they wanted to question a young man next door named Jake about the supermarket robbery who had a history of antisocial behavior with air guns. I am driven to a waiting van and taken back to London facility where I go through a debriefing with Alfred Bonner and Dr. Green. The armed robbery took place in January of 1992 and was reported in the local news and papers. Before I am driven back to the underground base in London, a black car, can't remember which make, is parked behind the police car on the Draycott Terrace. My AI cranial implant is activated and I walk out of the flat and down the stairs to the street outside. As I walk down the stairs, a man in a suit walks through the door at the bottom with one of my clones walking behind him. As we cross each other on the stairs, the clone and I touch hands in my swap memories. I walk out into the terrace, and my dad takes me to the black car open, and I get in without even saying goodbye to each other. Dr. Green is seated in the back seat, and when I get out, mentions something about a successful operation. He puts some type of long, handheld tube in my forehead, 
uh, possibly or tube up to my forehead, possibly made out of some clay-like material, and the driver reverses up the terrace quickly, and we pull out into the main road. We drive out of the St. Ives along the Carbis Bay Road, and when we get out into the roundabout uh, near St. Earth, I fall asleep. When I wake up, we are driving down a ramp in an underground car park, and we park in front of the door to the left, which leads to the hallway where the boys' and girls' dorms are situated. Two security guards open our doors, and I get out with Dr. Green. We walk to a door further down on the left and enter a lift. Green takes out a card and inserts it into the panel. We descend down possibly six levels. We exit and walk down a dimly lit hallway similar to the level in our dorms. We enter a room on the left and walk into a dark room containing three trip seats positioned next to each other with a fourth, with a fourth facing them. I see George Bush Sr. seated in the seat in the middle, Alfred Bonner seated to the right of him. All of us under full AI control now. I take my seat in front of them, and Dr. Green takes the seat up to the left of George Bush Sr. The broom lights up with red holographic displays above the three men's heads. Some kind of laser grid then links us telepathically together with a laser beam coming from our foreheads, connecting us together in a triangle shape. I begin to see the history of each being on the screen above their heads. I see Dr. Green is some kind of reptilian life form hiding within a man's body. This entity's origin is of the Dacronus star system, and I see the early history of his race on the screen. He is trapped within this part of time and space. I see survival dyna dynamics and rates, and see that him and others of his race are trapped here because of survival dynamics that relate to their females. Something to do with having their females taken away from them a long time ago and being jealous of humanoids being united with their female partners in this sector of space. They come to this sector for breeding purposes. George Bush Sr.'s history, or the entity posing as him, is given to me now. He is a Saurian, reptilian hiding within a human body. A large dinosaur, bipedal life form with a huge head. Again, I see survival dynamics displayed on the screen. This life form and others of their race have had their females stolen from them in past history by Pleiadian humanoids. Their females were brought to this planet and the Saurians followed their females here to rescue them and ended up trapped within this dimension. Next, I see Alfred Bonner's history displayed. He is a Pleiadian humanoid and was part of the taking of the Saurian females and bringing them to this planet. Alfred and I have been close friends for a long time as I am an Aldebaran, or Aldebaran Pleiadian too and see timeline displays of the four of us intricately weaved together. When the data download has finished, two security guards enter and I'm, out, and I'm escorted out by them and Dr. Green. I am taken to a room further down the hall and left and walk into a genetics lab here. I have to mention now that I, throughout my stay at this underground facility, I am being given daily injections of some kind of blood and nutrients-based nanites. Because of these injections, I do not and cannot eat food, as I, what I need at this time is supplied through the injections. The food I have been eating while in St. Ives is stored in some kind of cybernetic compartment in my stomach. The blood nano injections have some kind of addictive endorphin opiate light effect on me, and I have been denied recent injections and I am starting to go through withdrawal symptoms. 
Dr. Green shows me cloned copies of my own body in various stages of development in this room. Four tanks filled with colored liquid, green tubes, red tubes, house these bodies. The first is a copy of my body as a baby, the second as a child, the third as a teenager, the fourth as an adult. The body I am now appearing in is that of a teenager, and I gaze at the adult body with intense interest as to what I may become. The pain of withdrawals fades while I am distracted. Dr. Green shows me a small handheld device which shows surveillance footage of another genetics type lab down the hall. A teenage girl is in a cage, here with some kind of reptilian life form. Don't want to talk about the details. Dr. Green wants me to do something in this cage and I refuse. He threatens to keep restarting me, connecting me to these cloned bodies, so I will never develop properly. This is a terrifying prospect at the time and combined with intense need for blood that I am experiencing from the withdrawal symptoms, I agree to do what he asks. I am taken into the room with the cage and the reptilian is gone. One of the security guards unlocks the doors and I enter. The teenage girl is naked and sitting on the floor. I don't feel comfortable talking about what happens next. When this is over, I am taken to the level above back to my dorm room. 1992 Underground Facility, London First Unsanctioned Political Killing At night in my dorm room, I keep telling myself over and over, I am Commander Michael Prince, I am Commander Michael Prince, to retain my sanity and my human identity. I sense something big coming soon that will decide the next few years of my life. This comes around one morning and I am taken by two security guards to a medical operating theater on the right side of the hallway on our level. Three surgeon type doctors are inside and they get me to lay on an operating table. I stay awake for some kind of operation that focuses on my genitals and anus. Some kind of small implants put in these areas something to do with kundalini energy control over me. When this procedure is finished, one of the surgeons says something like, you'll make a fine question mark surname i can't remember uh i am taken next to my dorm to recover and the next memory i have is being escorted to one of the physical training rooms and performing many reps of pull-ups on a metal bar while a man takes notes on a clipboard i feel very physically light when i perform these reps after the operation I'm then escorted out of the hall into the underground car park to the right, where I get into the backseat of a car with a dark-haired man, finding it hard to recall the details of this man. He is talking about some events in the area, and we drive around the underground facility topside. He wastes no time in accessing my sex programming while in the backseat. He performs oral sex on me. The next memory is of me arriving in the driveway of a mansion in the countryside somewhere. I remember some code word about the name of a cat or something, I'm taken through the front door and I see two tall transvestite men wearing dresses standing near a staircase at the right. I see other people behind them wearing masks and these people are holding chains connected to a woman wearing a dog collar who are on all fours while they talk around them like they are animals or slaves. The man from the backseat of the car and one of the transvestites exchange words referring to me as the surrogate. And the transvestite takes me to upstairs into one of the bedrooms. A woman's dress is laid on the bed, and the transvestite gets me to take my clothes off and put on the dress. Once I have the dress on, he sits me down and puts woman's makeup on my face and then takes me back downstairs. I see many people walking excitedly towards the back of the house, and we join them. 
There is some kind of low circular wall in the garden with a circular enclosed inside. Steps going underneath the enclosure are to the left of the wall, and they enter some underground chamber where I sense some kind of looking glass machine has been placed. The people gather around the outside of the circle, and I am escorted to the center where a geometric shape, possibly a pentagram, is marked on the floor. I stand at the center and then see a young woman being dragged out of the house by two men. She is struggling, and the people around the circle begin to chant. The woman is some kind of sex slave, and she is positioned in the circle to the back of me. Neither of us can move now. I sense some movement behind me. I now remote view the scene from a different angle. The man had a huge knife and cuts her throat. I feel energy move into my back when this happens, and I almost pass out. There is much movement going on now, but I keep drifting in and out of consciousness, and it's hard to remember what happens. I think people are drinking the woman's blood. The next memory is being escorted back to one of the bedrooms by the tall transvestite and another man. The transvestite is instructing me to do various sexual activities, which ends up with the man, a politician connected to the MI6, can't quite see his face, having anal sex with me. He finishes by coming around to the front of me and ejaculating on my face while the transvestite gives me various instructions of what to do. I feel his psychic energy lessen over me when he ejaculates and I sense a tiny window of opportunity to gain control over myself. He stands there tired for a moment and I jump up and grab his face and head with both of my hands and break his neck. His neck snaps like a twig and he falls to the floor. The transvestite starts screaming and I strike him in the front of the neck and feel his throat collapse as he falls to the floor. I'm thinking of an escape route when the door busts open and three security men taser me. I am neutralized and the next memory I have is of being in some type of military courtroom. Kate Casbolt is there, Peter Casbolt, and Neil Petit along with other men in uniforms and women in suits. This is some sort of court-martial and I'm being charged with the unlawful killing, non-sanctioned killing, of a politician. The case revolves around the death of the politician, but no one cares about the transvestite because apparently no one cares about that. You know, he was just, he's like, he wasn't anyone, right? Uh, so 1992, London. I am to be court-martialed in a military court in the unlawful killing of the politician at the mansion. Location still unknown to me. I am taken to a court at the underground facility in London. I enter escorted by the two security guards who were previously escorting me around the halls and levels of London facility. Wackenhut can't remember IDs on the uniforms yet. I sit at a table at the front of the court. The judge sits in front of me in the left of the rows of the seats. I see Kate Casbolt, Peter Casbolt, and Neil Petit sitting to the left as well as the other side of the people. Prosecution and defense are seated near me as well. The judge starts to call out the case, and I am being told that I am tried for the unlawful killing of... Question mark. I'm finding it really hard to remember who this was. I'm pretty sure he was Russian. My defense starts the case by stating the killing cannot be called unlawful because the whole process of my life for the last few years has been unlawful. Details of my life are presented by the defense, and the judge stops him stating national security laws. I start to read some of these details on a document the defense lawyer has next to me. The details of my life are extremely watered down. These people don't seem to know the full horror of what has happened to me the past few years. 
the AI controlled deeper levels of the underground facilities. The prosecution and defense argue back and forth for a while until a judge stops them. The judge says the facts must be presented and a surveillance video is shown to everyone in court of what happened in the bedroom of the mansion at the time of the politician's death. The video stops and a stunned silence permeates the room. The judge breaks this by saying something about due legal processes and these parties being protected under law. The my fate is being decided and standard protocol is being mentioned with cryophase being mentioned for people like me under these circumstances. The defense asked for me to be housed at some facility with a code number and to be kept awake until a compromise can be arranged. I remember something connected to Princess Diana as closely related to this. The judge has to go along with the defense's suggestions because of what is occurring at the time with Diana. Can't remember the details at this time. The judge decides I am to be taken to question mark facility. Can't remember details, but somehow connected to some prison facility underwater in the Atlantic Ocean run by the NSA, the National Security Agency, and designed for the most dangerous prisoners in the world until they can decide what to do with me. I am taken from the underground court in London to be escorted by security to the sub-global tube shuttle system. First, I am taken to a room with various surgical procedures are carried out on me. I will be eating ordinary food in this place, and other changes will occur to my lifestyle. I am given time to recover by the doctors after this and then escorted to a lower level. Before we enter the tube shuttle terminal, one of the security guards takes a long metal tube-like device out of his pocket and tells me to put it on the inside of my leg. I put this device on my flesh and it feels like it melts into my skin. Apparently this was some kind of nanotech device that would help a certain group, possibly Command 12, keep track of me from here on out. We wait in the underground terminal until a shackled prisoner cart comes along the track. These vehicles look like a series of large clear plastic cubes in a row. Each cube holds one prisoner, although not all cubes held a prisoner at the time. I am put in a cube and my wrists and ankles are restrained by plastic extensions that come out from the front of the cube. The cart begins to move forward and accelerates extremely fast down the tracks into a dark tunnel. This is very disorienting and as most tube shuttles have shutters that come down over the windows when in motion to stop motion sickness caused by moving so fast, the lack of shutters is a kind of punishment for prisoners. As the motion on the outside gets to almost unbearable speeds, we travel through some kind of rainbow-colored gateway. Rainbow-colored swirling lights on the track, and a high-pitched vibration can be heard and felt. We have now traveled off-planet to the Sirius Star Sector. Although this D4 underground prison is officially listed on most Earth files as being located under the Atlantic Ocean. We traveled through another series of tunnels and come to a stop at the end of a track inside a building with high ceilings with two huge curved archways on either side of the room. Two rows of archways on either side of the room um, have the SS Stormtrooper logo and men stand on either side of the train dressed in ultra-modern black leather uniforms and face masks holding advanced rifle-type weapons with SS symbols emblazoned on the left side of the chest of their uniform. Ezra appears behind the guards in her female SS uniform with a clipboard 
and the side doors open, the plastic clips click unlocked with the wrists and ankle straights inside the plastic housing still in place, and she orders us outside of the cart. Nineteen ninety two off planet D four underwater prison facility. I mentioned this facility on my Coast to Coast AM interview. During the discussion with George, I described a water world planet in a serious system that has a small landmass in the center with some kind of city within the center of the landmass. That is the only populated area above the water. The rest of the planet is ocean. The D four prison is apparently impossible to escape from. The facility includes men and women and alien life forms, not all housed together. I'd like to talk about Isra now and the need for the so-called sexual dominatrix women to be used at the facility. These individuals are used for the simple fact that the psi, psychic, and sexual energy is one and the same. There was a need at this facility to dominate and suppress psi, sexual energy of the many psychics there and for simple reason that although the NSA, National Security Agency, is considered the facility impossible to escape from, they were concerned I could take over the minds of the entire staff and escape. I am still attempting to get the drawings of Ezra and Hans, which spent much time at the facility, from a Welsh remote viewer, but he seems to have disappeared. He will be drawing a picture of Hans, who was involved in the abuse. Hans picked her up from a San Francisco apartment from the same men of the plane, including Hans the plane of British accents, and they told they were headed to Nevada, they were headed to A51. In reality, also, as mentioned above, he was picked up in a van in St. Ives before H arrived. There's a lot of edited stuff. Um, there's a lot of uh, censored stuff, like censored marks, and I can show you right now. That's how he censors it. He just puts X's over segments. The van had a former MI6 director, John McLeod Scarlett, and it, and it was drugged and dropped into a trance and shown video footage by Scarlett and another man on a laptop of H in Amsterdam. The video showed hardcore blank with Ezra abusing her in blank. The van picked up event was designed to use panic and nausea inducing drugs to connect these feelings with meeting H, therefore making it harder for us to get together. Uh, I think that was actually his wife. Um, he was married to a Rothschild, I think Helena Rothschild. And uh, that who I is, I think, the teenager that he had lifetime experience with in the underground facilities was Helena Rothschild. Helena Rothschild, who was his real-life wife and who he does have a real-life son with. That's who Max Spears and Sarah Rachel Adams seduced and, for, and, and caused to cheat on him and then to convince her to get a divorce and then travel... Uh, with them back to England, which is why I think he followed them from America to England. It was Helena Rothschild. Where was I? The prisoners from the shuttle are ordered by Ezra to disembark. We stand in a line waiting to be transferred to a cell complex. Through the archway with the last stop terminal in it, on the right-hand side of this huge room, the guards attach plastic rods which connect to the wrist and ankle restraints, forcing us to hunch over, only allowing us to take small shuffling steps. 
Ezra walks along the line, taking names, numbers, and ticking her clipboard. When this is complete, she orders us to follow her through the large archway into a huge three-leveled cell complex. Some of the guards escort the other prisoners to the cells, and Ezra takes me to the top level of the cell tier. The bottom tier contains mostly black prisoners, and the top tier mostly white prisoners. She takes me to a cell which guards an escort in the middle of the top tier, and I'm told to walk into the cell. This is a similar room to the dorm room in the London Underground facility, with a toilet sink at the top end of the room, a single bed against the wall on the left-hand side, and a small writing desk with a chair under the right-hand side of the room. The front of the cell has open bars, and this room is actually less oppressive than the dorm rooms of the London facility, as the hallways and the dorms were darker there. Both had a metal door and will be locked at night, so basically I've gone from one prison to another. She tells me to sit on the bed as she stands outside the cell. There is a hole in the floor near the bed, and I am told to place a plastic rod attached to the middle of the ankle restraints inside the hole. I am now secured within the cell, and the restraining device is firmly connected to the floor so I cannot get off my bed. Ezra dismisses the guards and comes into the cell. We have some quick conversation about me just being kept here for the time being until they can figure out what to do with me. I am pretty sure we are having this conversation in German. She leaves the cell and presses a button inside the cell door on the right-hand side of the wall. This makes the ankle and wrist restraints pop open, and I place the restraint device on the floor. It is still connected to the floor and slided around the semicircle under the bed. Part 6 1992, D4 Facility, Sirius Sector I lay on my bed and begin to orientate myself. I sense I have physically traveled to a location in different part of the galaxy in the secret NSA space program. It is important for me to work out where I am located to stabilize myself. I know I am not at the facility underneath the Atlantic Ocean as stated officially at the London Underground Base. I remember how some of the enhanced soldier units had gone insane when they traveled to a far-off planet in the space program as they could not orientate themselves after being disconnected from the electromagnetics of Earth they had been raised on. I reminded myself that all places are my home. I hold the galaxy within my palm and I am an old traveler and one day will inherit my very own planet again. I project a Kabbalah formation within my mind's eye and see smaller tree of life formulas within each Sephirothic circle. I turn the Kabbalah on its side and see the circle on the bottom right corner light up. I have physically traveled through a series of wormholes in the sub-transit system and arrived within the Sirius star sector. I know the energies of this location well and relax into them and fall asleep. The next morning I am awoken by two security guards outside my cell door. I am instructed to shackle myself in the restraining apparatus connected to the floor. As I do this, I stare to my right and focus on one of my guards. I extract the following information. A meeting has been held the night before and through a series of documents put together by a Catholic Jesuit study group, it has been ascertained that repeated attempts to break my mind, to allow an alien entity to take possession of my body and part of my mind, have failed. The study group has realized that the reason for this is because I have repeatedly sealed my mind and identity every night when alone in my room before sleep after various torture sessions. Now, one last desperate attempt will take place to split and trap my mind in a Kabbalah-based underground pillar that uses a combination of advanced liquids, gases, and low temperatures. I am escorted in the shackles to a lift in the middle of the upper-tier prison block. 
We enter the lift, and one of these guards presses a button with an alien symbol on it. The symbols on the lift button display appear to be a mixture of Kabbalah, Sumerian, and possibly Latin Catholic symbols and information. We descend in the lift and travel below the ground floor in the facility. The doors open and we exit on a metal platform and walk down a flight of stairs onto a large open space floor area. I see Ezra, the female guard, standing near chains hanging from the ceiling. The restraints are open and I told to strip while the two guards stand near me with mean-looking cattle prod devices they have just armed themselves with. These devices were hung on the walls of this large chamber. Ezra pulls the chains down and puts arm clamps around my wrists. The chains are pulled upwards and I am lifted off the floor and dangled by my wrist. I look up and see blacked out windows in the upper left of the room and I sense torture devices and a group of people situated there observing. A trapdoor opens below me and I look down and see a deep well-like hole with metal sides. I am lowered down and I see symbols on the sides. The shaft is lit up with a dim red-colored light. As I descend deeper, I am sprayed with cold vapor. This stuns me and I see water at the bottom of the shaft. My feet touch the water and I am lowered in. I am now entering an altered state of consciousness and I see skeletons of dead people in the water who have died in the well. My skin seems to be blistering as the temperature lowers. A circular plastic grid is shut over my head and I am now trapped under the water. I feel like I am starting to drown, but just as I feel like something is about to explode inside me, I experience a feeling of massive power and peace. I feel I have left my body for a split second and then I realize my body is a safe place to be. I realize my mind sealed in my body makes my mind and body literally indestructible. I am breathing in bioelectricity from the space around me, and I can survive indefinitely underwater. The moment I experience this cognition, the plastic grid opens up and I am pulled upwards. As I travel back to the surface, I shout at the top of my lungs, You can't kill me, motherfuckers. I live forever. I am pulled through the opening and I see a large group of people dressed in black robes in a triangle formation on the floor. They are on their knees prostrating before me chanting something like, Son of Elijah, Galaxy Opening, Shore of Paradise. Parashore? Question mark. I am hanging in the middle of my chains. An individual at the peak of the triangle formation of people instructs me, one of the guards, to let me down. The chains are lowered and my wrists are unlocked. I instinctively approach this individual at the head of the triangle and he pulls down his hood to reveal a reptilian face with white skin and red stripes along his face. He says something about love thy enemy in a deep voice and hands me a gold scepter that apparently belongs to me. He stands to the side and motions to a gold colored door built into the wall. I pick up psi information from the reptilian that there is a room behind the door with exact copies on Earth in places such as Antarctica and Peru with the Nazis and other groups having control of them. I walk towards the room and the gold-colored door opens. I am bathed in a green light when this happens and I see a male and a female reptilian sitting on two thrones like seats on the other sides of the green room. I walk towards the holographic images of the past 
From my third eye, the walls of the room are made of some type of emerald stone. I see images of great wars in space and on the surface of planets, brothers in arms, lost loves, queens, kings, gods that walk the earth, giants, Mars, I see and I remember names, Jehov, Kemogol, Ursap, Urak, and many others. I walk over to the two thrones. We all nod our heads to each other in recognition. I place the scepter I am holding within a clear crystal tube-like device that extends from the floor. Some kind of clear diamond light extends in a prism formation around the room, and the female and male reptilian begin to talk together in my mind. The language sounds Sumerian and is translated into English here. We've searched the galaxy looking for worthy opponents for our blood. You fit criteria. You will engage in long conflict with us. Respect you, warrior. Go against us. Show no mercy. We will show you none. Embrace your egos, serum, serathim, seraphim, and play a most dangerous game. Now go. More tasks for you and the great atrium gnosis, the holy basilica reptilius. End transmission. With additional added information noted here as of 12... 18 2010. This was last edited December 18th, 2010. You read that now after Pizzagate, after the rise of the Trump QAnon Great Awakening movement. Read that now with open eyes from the last 10 years from the Mayan apocalypse PSYOP to 2022. You read that with as much perspective as you can. That's still revolutionary, radical material. That's as relevant now, more so now, and will always be relevant, cutting-edge material, because it deals with the absolute realities of the world of ufology, of the secret space programs, of the super soldier program, and in such specific detail of first-person experience that cannot be denied, that is probably the most fundamentally important eyewitness testimony in ufology in the last hundred years. It's just, it's in the last 100 years. Easily. And that is the conclusion of James Casbolt's Project Ibis Life and Times of Michael Prince. I have spoken about it over several videos. This has a, been a labor of love and a passion project because I hope that it reaches people and I hope they save and preserve it, internalize it. And like I said, I'm going to go out and search for more James Casbolt videos, present them uh, to the public domain on my channel and my podcast, present them for free to the public, and provide commentary on his videos, analysis on his uh, work, basically collect his library of surviving materials and try to offer them through public domain 
through the Beyond Top Secret Texan. Because without him, I would never come to my awakening, seeing that those experiences were also mine in many ways and in various differences, but seeing that someone had the courage and someone was able to collect the memories and, like I said, stay in a court of law the, up until the day he was imprisoned, keeping with these stories, keeping with these guns, keeping with these testimonies, these, these recollections, and, and telling the truth about people who would become heroes, quote-unquote, mainstream heroes of deep underground ufology. Max Spears, he was highly critical of Max Spears. He um, claimed that Max Spears uh, seduced uh, Helena Rothschild, his wife, and convinced her to get a divorce with him, and then eventually moved Helena Rothschild to England so that Max Spears would have to return to England where he knew he was already wanted by the law and um, suffer being arrested and then, uh, I think in prison for 12 years, I think he was released recently, but uh, and through good behavior, at least, at least in advance. But he definitely did, did serve time in the British prison system um, and, and held true to his story, did not deny it or recount it or, 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 or claim it to be fantasy, not once. And like I said, most of his work has been deleted by the very person who recorded the vast majority of James Casbolt's testimony, that was Miles Johnston. So he was betrayed by the very person who was actually instrumental in even collecting his work. But Michael Prince, I mean, James Casbolt, was his own motivator. He was putting this information out. Miles Johnston just was his agent. He was just the one who was giving him the, the avenues, the venues to publicly speak and to record through his channel and everything. James Casbolt was before Michael Prince as an independent ufologist. This is through Project Camelot. There was contact in the desert. Michael Prince is his own guy. He's a Miles uh, Johnson, if anything, was uh, completely controlling Max Spears and Sarah Rachel Adams. And that combination with James Casbolt seeing through them, becoming highly suspicious of them, being attacked by them, like I said, Max Spears and Sarah Rachel Adams seducing Helena Rothschild after Helena Rothschild had their son, seducing them while they lived in San Francisco in an apartment, in a condominium. And then while James Casbolt was traveling and giving his testimony, coming back and then having Helena Rothschild having left with Max Spears back to England to live and to go back, you know, he's like where they are. So James Casbolt being forced then to follow where they had set the trap for him and thus facing his own imprisonment. He knew this did it anyway. Adds a lot of validity to the story. James Casbolt Project Ibis. This will be the first and hopefully a, a long collection and archiving of his testimony and uh, perspective on the secret space program because it opens up the secret space program to its entirety and its truth, especially the super soldier program and its deviousness and its complexities and its, its many, many angled realities. And it's terrible, stark, terrifying, uh, you know, torturous existence uh, for everyone involved and the extremes of darkness that, that it all has at every level. And, and you know, like I was saying, that we don't live in a world where that's just one small piece of our normal real-world reality. Our real-world reality is one small piece of this overall arching galaxy's worth of 
creation that is that. With our reality being but a small bubble of ignorance, an island that's kept safe for free-range organic humans. And I guess that's a good part to leave it in. Let's see, I am fatigued. This is the second show I did, second live I did today. You catch out those first lives, Patreon exclusive. Um, join Patreon to get access to that link uh, and, and the playlist link for them. And this podcast and this live stream are going to go exclusive as well. Membership only. They deserve it because they're supporters, loyalists, uh, through and through to the Beyond Texas, uh, Beyond Top Secret Texan cause. And this material, exclusive for them. For those that watch me live, you guys earned it because you were there on the spot. And, you know, you support me, give me company while I do it and everything. But I highly encourage you to take that extra step. Join Patreon or join and become a member of my podcast on Anchor FM slash Beyond Top Secret Text. And I'll bring you right there. Spotify gives you the links as well. Uh, because Spotify owns Anchor. It's fucking complicated. But the point is, um, Spotify and Anchor, those are the two ones I'm going with right now. Yes, I have free content. Yes, a lot of my videos on YouTube are free. Yes, some of these lives will be free for everyone. Always some of the podcast episodes will be free in the future. But because the intense subject matter, because of the controversial subject matter, and honest, uncensored discussion... The only way I can keep it uncensored is if I, you know, keep it for customers only and everything. Keep it, you know, very discreet. And and basically I get a lot more rights as a creator once I put just a dollar sign. Once I put it for private use only than if I had it public. Than if I had these live streams public, YouTube would censor me, copyright strike me, take my channel down, demonetize me like they already have. And, and it's like, disappear me, right? But I have to keep these private and unlisted. Then YouTube allows me to make them, allows me to keep them on, etc. So it's all part of the business. Thank you very much for understanding ahead of time. It all goes towards the show. It all goes towards the production value, etc. Better equipment, better studio, better gear, uh, better documentaries, better content for you guys, the audience. Best audience out there in Dreamland, Namaste and Shalom. Iron sharpens iron, a friend sharpens a friend. Thank you very much. God bless you and your families. I've been listening to Beyond Top Secret Texan. Beyond Top Secret Texan coming to you from the third coast, coast of the most, Gulf Coast, Texas. Thank you very much. God bless you. Peace out.
Just use the bathroom.